God, Lord, we thank you that you are worthy of all of our um, thoughts, Lord, all of our affection, all of our trust. God, and I pray, Lord, this morning that we would, Father, have a true hunger, Lord, for your spirit, a true hunger for, for your truth, Jesus, that we would see, God, the measure of the fullness of Christ that we see in this word, Lord, that we would see what's all available and who you are, Lord, the price that you've paid, Jesus, that you, you gave it all, Lord, that you spilled um, all of your blood, Lord, that we would know you, God, and that we could partake in your gift, God. I just pray, Father, this morning, Lord, that there wouldn't be a contentment, God, or anything in us, Lord, um, that's just here to be here, Lord. But I pray, God, that you'd be stirring in us a heart, Father, that just hungers and thirsts for your righteousness above anything else, Lord. So I pray, God, that you prepare our hearts, Lord, that we would receive your word, Father, and that we would uh, be doers of it, God, that we would leave this place, Lord, change, and we'd leave this place, Lord, with a mission um, to be more like Christ. Father, we love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. In Jesus' name, we pray and believe these things. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks for joining us this morning at ESS. My name's Luke, for those of you who don't um, know me. And we are going to be continuing in the book of Ephesians this morning. If I can, there we go. Clicker's working, I think, now. Um, but I hope you guys all survived the hailstorm um, for the 4th of July. You guys were good, not caught in the weather, caught outside during that, but at least had somewhere to go. Me and Sarah were in Nebraska and did not get attacked by hail, but I know that from pictures and things, it was pretty bad here. So hope you guys had a good 4th, and thanks for joining us here. I know a lot of people were out of town, that kind of thing, but thanks for making it here. I know there's a lot of things people could be doing, but I appreciate you guys coming in and being with us in the house of the Lord today. Um, as we continue in Ephesians chapter 4, the title for today's sermon is The Measuring Tool. And before we get too much into the title, I just want to read the scripture that we have for today with some context of the, the scripture we've been talking about before as well. Ephesians 4, 11-13, which says, And he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I know we've said this every week, but it's so important to read Ephesians as, a, as one letter, as one book, that Paul didn't break this up, or God didn't break this up into verses and chapters, but this was written as one big picture. And that we saw in chapter 1, the church was called out. Chapter 2, we saw that we were a family in the blood of Christ. Chapter 3, we saw the church is a mystery. And finally, here in chapter 4, we're seeing the church as a team, and Verses um, 11 through 13, or really 11 through 16, being the mission statement here at ESIS and the practical application of what we've seen so far in the first three chapters. So we have these truths, we have this doctrine, but now how do we live this out as a church on the day-to-day, -day, on the boots, on the ground, what God has called us to do. So with that quick picture, I want to go back to our title and ask you guys a couple questions. First... What do you need in order to measure something? And pretty simple, that you need an object, you need something to measure, and you need something to measure with, right? You need a tool, and you need the, the object that you are actually measuring. And when you measure something, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of measuring whatever you are about to measure? And I was thinking of a couple analogies we could talk about this morning, but nothing is better than practical, real-life things that um, me and Sarah lost the key to our apartment and couldn't get in 
last night. And when you need a key to get in, that key has to fit the keyhole. You can't just put any key in there to unlock the door. It has to fit. It has to be measured accurately and very accurately. Because even if it starts to wear and tear, that key stops unlocking the door that you need to unlock. And so the purpose of measurement, whether it's a key or, say, you um, need a new door for your house or whatever it is, You've got to have the right dimensions for that door in order to fit your doorway. And imagine if you hired a contractor, he came in, and he had no measuring tools, and he just had to make a door for this doorway and just eyeballed it. How frustrating would it be if you were paying this guy by the hour and by his, um, say, his tools or whatever he needed, you were paying him to do this stuff, and it was taking him, like, six years because he kept trying to ballpark and if you're off by an inch or two inches on a door that makes a big difference and you can't close it there's you know heat leaving the house or there's cool air coming in when it's not supposed to and how important measurement is say for a door and the purpose of of measuring is to really provide exactness for what you're doing if it needs to be exactly 12 by 5 it needs to be exactly 12 by 5 otherwise it won't fit the door, and there's all kinds of measurements, whether it's feet and inches, that's one way, but I know as, as an athlete in college that you got measured all the time, whether it was a combine, you could measure people's athletic abilities, or whether, whether it was watching film, you got measured at your scrimmage, at your practice to see how well you were doing, and the co coaches had a standard that you had to meet, and whether it's measuring a door, whether it's measuring athletic performance, there's a million things that you can measure, but really what it does, it provides a standard, it provides exactness, and it challenges us both in, in maybe what we're doing well, but it also reveals what we're not doing well. It's diagnostic. And so if you're measuring a door and it's not the right size, what does the ruler do? It just shows you this is not the right size and it needs further work in order to fit whatever you're doing. I know as an athlete, I was or appreciated measurement because if I wasn't doing something well, I wanted to know it. Because if I didn't know it, come game time, um, you lost the game or you didn't perform well. So measurement was so important as an athlete. It's obviously important as a carpenter or whatever you would be doing. So with a couple corny analogies, the question kind of for us this morning is how do you measure spiritually? Individually, as an individual person, how do you measure how you are doing right now in a spiritual sense? And second, how do we, how do we measure corporately where we're at as a church? How do we know if we're doing good or if we're doing bad or, or how we're performing as a church or, or even um, as an individual. And sometimes when you ask someone, you know, how has this season been for you spiritually, you get an answer like, oh, it's been dry or it's been good or it's been bad. But wh why is it good? Why is it bad? Why is it dry? If it's just how we feel, that's not going to be a very good thing because we're feeling good and bad and different all the time. So if our spiritual health is based on how we feel, that's not a very good thing because it's not going to be um, it's not going to be consistent and it will not be stable. And so when we talk about how we're measuring spiritually, it's so important because when we throw out a vague phrase like, I'm doing bad spiritually, that's pretty discouraging because how do you improve that? If there's no measurement on why you're doing bad, you really don't know what to do next. Or you're just stuck with I'm doing bad. Or if we're, maybe we think we're doing good, that's great, but how do we build on that? And so without measurement, without a standard, there's really no improvement or there's nothing to build on without knowing why we are at where we're at. So when we look at this aspect of measuring, in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes a great point. He says, For we do not, or for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. There's a lot of 
themselves in this scripture. But his point is, is these people were comparing themselves by what they saw. So whether it was another church, whether it was other people, maybe it was even other cultures. And the thing about that, that will always get us in trouble. If we are comparing ourselves or measuring ourselves by other people, other churches, other anything, that will lead to trouble. If you look at the Old Testament at all, Israel got themselves in trouble over and over and over by measuring themselves by the other nations. And as a result, they started to get further and further off track of what God had for them as a people. See, God provides measurement because one is an immovable standard. Two, it diagnoses. It shows where things are at. But the final thing, it demands a response. If you measured a door and you knew that it was two inches short and you didn't fix it, there was no use in measuring it. That measurement isn't just for the aspect of defining something, but measurement is for the purpose of then responding to whatever we've measured. And so God provides measurement to diagnose, to give us the opportunity to respond to what he is saying. The cool thing about this is God is not critical. He doesn't measure for the point of being critical. If God wanted to be critical, obviously he could do that. He doesn't, it wouldn't take him long to find things wrong with us if that was his point. But the point of measurement isn't to be critical, but instead is to be exact and actually to build us up because he's giving us the platform, he's giving us the truth, he's giving us the ability to actually build on what he's doing in our life or to be able to correct us. So I want to hit this kind of dead horse here this morning about measurement and how important it is. Because when we look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, especially verse 13, it's not only the measuring tool for us as a church, but it's a measuring tool for us personally at where we are at with the aspects of this scripture. So I pray that as we look at this, there's three things that really pop out to us. I hope that this measurement that we see in Ephesians 4, 13, 1 reveals that his vision, his purpose is too big for us and we cannot do it on our own. This may seem simple, but I pray that we actually grasp this because when you look at what God asked Gideon to do, what God asked Moses to do, what God asked Daniel to do, what God asked Paul to do, none of these guys could have done those things on their own. And if they were looking at that vision saying, I think I can handle this, one, they would have never done it because they wouldn't have the desperation and the obedience and the faith to actually follow God. And it's so important to realize that the vision and the purpose God will call us to corporately, but also individually, it will be too big for us. And if we can grasp what God's asking us to do, there's a good chance that probably wasn't from God. And that's just what Jamie was saying going into worship today, that, that there's this aspect of going deeper and deeper and deeper with the Lord until you get to this spot where you can't even touch the ground, but you actually have to trust Him. And that's the point, is God will ease us in, but if we are following God's will, we will end up at the point where we can't touch. We're going to have to actually trust in what we're doing and live by faith in Christ alone. So first, it's important that as we look at this scripture, I hope it's evident that we cannot attain to these things on our own. Number two, this will show that his grace and having faith in his promises is our only hope. Again, very simple, but in Hebrews it says, he who does not come to God in faith can't please him. That it's impossible to please God without faith. And faith is believing he is exactly who he says he is and that he will do exactly what he says he will do, and not lowering that standard because it's not happening. And that's what we saw over and over with Israel was because God wasn't doing exactly what they said when they wanted it. They just started to make amends and try to do things a little bit differently to accomplish whatever they wanted. And finally, I, I hope that we see in this scripture that we need each other in order to accomplish the standard that God has put forth for us. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6 
There's a great summary of this. Paul says, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, God's standard by itself would bring death if he didn't give us a spirit to accomplish it. Because God's standard is so high that that would be very discouraging. It would beat us down if it was just by our blood, sweat, and tears. But the fact that God does give us this measurement that we'll see here in a minute, it shows us how much this it requires for us to be sufficient of him and not of ourselves. How much it requires for us to live by the spirit and not just by the letter of the law or by what we know or by the you know scripture we can quote. But more deeply in, in living by faith in the spirit of Christ. So, with all that to be said, with a long intro, we'll go back into Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. The last two weeks, we've been going through verses 11 and 12, which really describes the process. We see the process God had for his church in order to be a team. It says, and he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Last time we talked about the military analogy of training being equipped to go out to war, that when we look at this is the process. So in military, when you go through the process, what's the final result? You are ready and you are equipped to go out to war. In this aspect, after we are equipped in Christ, what is the result? And in chapter 13, we see a template. We see something that, that we can measure. Is this true in our church? Is this true in our individual lives as believers? So in verse 13, we see that we'll focus on today is the measuring tool. It says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see three aspects of this that we're going to hit on. One, till we all come to the unity of faith. We're going to look at what is the unity of the faith. Two, what is the knowledge of the Son of God. And three, what does it mean to be a perfect man? But with all three of these, whether it's unity whether it's the knowledge of God, whether it is a perfect man, all of these, how do we measure these? It says by the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These three things aren't measured by the best we can do, but these things are measured by the standard that Jesus Christ has put before us, and that will never move. That that is an immovable standard, and it will never change um, that what Christ has for us and what Christ has done um, through the cross and what he has called us to as the church. So with that to be said, the first thing I want to look at is unity of the faith. John 17, 11, Jesus says this, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. When we look at this scripture of unity, I want you guys to think about for a second, what is the first thing that comes to unity when you just think about it in your mind? You had five seconds to think about that real fast. Whatever it is that comes to your mind, oftentimes I think of somebody that, you know, they're on a team, they're on the same page, they're, they're doing something together. But that's not the, the depth of it that we see in the scripture. Because Jesus says unity is that we, as he's talking about us in this room, could be one in the same way that Jesus Christ is one with the Father. That should blow our mind. Because Jesus and the Father, they're really one. They're the Trinity. They can't be more one than they are. And the definition of unity in the Greek here is oneness. It's not similarity. And the big thing that I think we, we can tend to do in the church is the difference between unity and uniformity. And what I mean by that is there's one thing to be unified in oneness, 
But uniformity means that you conform or assimilate to something you're seeing. And so maybe you go to a church that, you know, you think um, pastor so-and-so is awesome, or you think this little group, they're so cool. And so we end up trying to be like them, and we think by being like them, we're being like Christ, and that we're becoming unified. We're not becoming unified, we're just conforming to something. And Jesus Christ has made us very unique, but when we try to find our uniqueness on our own, we just end up being like everybody else. Because there's nothing new under the sun. If you read Ecclesiastes, every history repeats itself. We have history people in this room. History is the same over and over and over. And when we try to be unique or we try to find our gift, what does the Bible say? It says he who tries to find his life will lose it. That when we try to find ourselves, that's the moment we're going to lose ourselves. But the moment that we find Christ, that's where we're going to find who we are. And that's why only true unity can come in Christ. Because if each one of us has our eyes set on Christ, each one of us actually will become and each one of us actually will be a unique part of the body that will be totally different, but yet completely unified. And that's honestly something that's impossible. When you think about that, that just the 25 people that could be in this room that could all be completely unique, but 100% on the same page and one as a body is. And when you think about it on the practical standpoint of the, the Bible uses the body of Christ as an analogy, your hand is not at all really like your foot or like your knee, but it's still one. It's still part of your body, right? And so in the same way, this unity is so important for us to grasp that it's not about uniformity. It's not about becoming like the people we see or being like Billy Graham or being like whoever you have seen as a religious figure. That When we try to do that, I don't know if you guys have ever been in that state, especially maybe as a, a little kid, if you had like an older brother or sister, but it's like a little brother syndrome or little sister syndrome that you're trying so hard to be like somebody, and it's so frustrating because you can't be that person. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you do, you can never be that whoever it was that you were looking up to because that's, that's not you. But Jesus Christ has made you not to be like that person, but to be like him. Discipleship isn't to make people like us. But discipleship is to make people like Jesus Christ and to actually find true unity that's oneness and not just assimilating to a culture or assimilating to a certain style of church. And the last thing that's important about this, I think, is that as we pursue Christ, that we allow this to be reciprocated in finding our identity. That you look at Peter and the apostles, how often Jesus told them exactly what they needed to know. It was really clear. And he told Peter exactly who he was. Peter, you're a rock. You're Cephas. He named him. He told him over and over and over. Why did Peter get to, to the day of the crucifixion and deny Christ? That even though he was told this over and over and over, he had never really received it in faith to really believe that's who he was. And so when time came, he ran. But what happened when Jesus was resurrected and he came before Peter and he said, you know, Peter, do you love me? At that moment, Peter's identity switched not because... Jesus just said it over and over and over. But he had an encounter with Christ, the resurrected Christ, in faith, that when he received the Spirit, it was no longer he had to be told every day, Peter, you're an apostle of Christ, and you can really do this. He just believed it, because at that point, he had really received what Jesus put in, put in him. And our identity can't be hinged upon people reminding us all the time, but it has to be foundational in who Christ has really taught us and shown us that we are in him. So when we look at unity of the faith, this is something that should be produced after verses 11 and 12. It's a byproduct of the saints being equipped by the fivefold ministry that we have talked about. So our next video here, if I can get this to go. Sweet. All right, it's John 17, 3, talking about the knowledge of the Son of God. 
And Jesus says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I was really fascinated by this, and someday I would like to maybe do a whole sermon just on that, or study it more, but the knowledge of the Son of God, in the Greek, this word knowledge actually means full discernment or recognition of somebody or something. And so I want you guys to think about real quick just the closest person in your life, whether that's a dad, friend, whoever that is. When you hear a story about them, oftentimes, I know for me, I would catch my saying, myself saying, like, oh, man, that is so like my dad. Because you know him and you recognize him. So if he does something dumb or funny or good, whatever it is, like, oh, man, that is so like my dad. Because you recognize the work that he does. The good stuff he does, the bad stuff he does. Because you know him so well, when you see his work, it's recognizable. See, what he's talking about is the knowledge of the Son of God is that we would recognize the person of Christ in our everyday life and recognize the person of Christ by the fruit that's displayed by ministry. And so you can see something from your own life or out in the world and know that is of Christ or that's not of Christ by the full knowledge of God and discernment of what he's doing. And so that's where it goes back to we don't lower the standard because when, when John the Baptist sent for Jesus to know if he was the Messiah... Jesus said, well, what do you see? He didn't try to convince John the Baptist that he was the Messiah. He just said, well, the dead are being raised. The um, poor have the gospel preached them, and the blind see. He said, do you believe that I'm the Messiah? That in the same way as the church, if we have to convince people that Christ is in us, or we have to convince people that we're Christians, that's not a good thing, that the fruit of Christ should be so recognizable. The only explanation would be, there has to be something supernatural in that group of people or in that person. That should be the only explanation for the fruit. It should be something that we have to convince people of. And in John 17, 3, this is what Christ has made available. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That this knowing of Christ is the very reason that he came. Jesus didn't come. It doesn't say to get us out of um, hell or to get us into heaven. He says that we would know him, that this whole purpose Christ has come is for this intimacy that we could recognize him and we could be recognized by him. And so this knowledge of the Son of God is not just knowing about God or being able to have facts, but it says full discernment and, and something being recognizable. And the question for, for us this morning is do we honestly recognize Christ in the same way that we recognize that person who ever popped into our mind? Are the attributes of Christ and the fruit of Christ just recognizable to us as our dad or our spouse or our best friend? Or are we in that type of intimacy with the purpose or the person of Christ today? So the last thing that we see get measured says that we'll come to a perfect man. In the Greek, this, this word perfect man, it's almost better translated, translated as full maturity or an adult. Someone who has grown up into Christ. And again, not just in age as an adult, but in maturity as an adult. And I was asking Sarah this week, um, how would you define a mature sixth grader or a student? She teaches sixth grade. And I thought her response was good of talking about how they respond or react to a certain situation. That our maturity isn't based on how much we know, how much money we make. You could be a millionaire, provide for your family, all these different things, but not be a very mature person. And you can have nothing and be a very mature person or, or, or a fruitful person. And so how we respond and react to life issues, evidently our fruit, 
reveals how mature we are as a person. And this word is talking about maturity as the body of Christ. Our maturity can display the fullness of Christ. Now, we each would have our weaknesses, but together we display the fullness of who Jesus is. Not just part of him, but the whole character of Christ as the body of Christ. And I love this C.S. Lewis story. He's talked about this guy who lived in a basement. And it was all full of rats and cobwebs. It was nasty. And people would come over to his house. And when they got there, he would clean it up super nice. And he would invite them down. And it looked like he lived in this great place. But 99% of the time, he lived with rats and spiders. And it was, you know, laundry all over the floor. It was just a bad place to be. But when visitors came, he made it look nice. Well, one day, a guy walked in unexpectedly, opened the door, and the basement's trash. And it's nasty. Man, you live in a dungeon. And see, the thing was, this guy was able to fool everybody, but the whole time, that's what his house really looked like. And see, us as believers, we can know stuff, but when something happens that's unexpected, when all of a sudden we can't pay the rent, all of a sudden relationships clash, what comes out of us? And that's what the maturity is really about. The mature Christian, the mature believer, what comes out when we're unexpected is Christ. But if we aren't, if we just have the superficial knowledge or whatever, when stuff happens, we get really angry, we get really discouraged, we get really anxious, and then we just say, well, it was just a bad day. It wasn't a bad day, it's just the truth of us actually finally came out, because we weren't able to suppress it by knowing what was coming. And so this maturity isn't just about, I don't want it to sound like this is, we all need to be um, theologians and know all this stuff. Maturity is about how we react and how we respond to life. Do we react and respond like Christ? Or do we react and respond like ourselves? 1 John 2, 12-14 gives a great picture of maturity. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. When we look at this scripture, there's different levels of kids, young men, and fathers. And when you think about it, what would happen if you held an 8-year-old to the same standard as you held a 24-year-old, that you need to get a job, you need to drive a car, you need to have a family, that 8-year-old would have no shot. And see, the thing about us in maturity as a body and also individually is we need to also recognize the season that we're at. When we do fall short, again, it's a measurement. It's not that God's beating us down with revealing maybe immaturity in our life, but he's giving us opportunity to build up on that. And you guys, if you've been around Johnny, he's been using this like crazy, but we need to be able to celebrate first downs. That when we are improving, we need to be encouraged by what God is doing in our life. That just like he's talking about here, the, the little children, they just know their sins are forgiven. And man, they're pumped because they, they've accepted Christ. They're babes in the faith. We're pumped about that. But then he says the fathers have known him who is from the beginning. And they have this deep revelation. They've known him for a long time. And they have this deep revelation of who God is. And God isn't looking down on the children for being children. And so we also need to be patient and trust God's sanctifying work in us. That when we are getting frustrated and maybe not seeing the progress we want to be seeing, well, let's look at the word. Let's measure you know, where, where am I doing good and actually celebrate those things? And maybe where am I struggling or where am I falling short of the standard? And now, according to the word, how can I work on those things? That maturity isn't I've either arrived or I haven't arrived. An 8-year-old is maturing. A 15-year-old is maturing. A 30-year-old is still maturing. 
a 60-year-old is still maturing. Maturity is something that's going to continue through our whole Christian walk, and we can't define at one moment necessarily whether we're immature or we are mature. This is something that should be, be a process through our life, but how we should measure that is how do we react and how do we respond to life's issues? Do we respond like Christ, or do we just respond in our flesh? So when we look at these three aspects, the unity of faith, the oneness, the knowledge of the Son of God, do we recognize the fruit of Christ, and are we recognizable as like Christ, and the perfect man, the full maturity and adulthood in Christ. I don't know if anybody wants to stand up and tell us how they have perfected one of those areas. Probably nobody is going to be the first one to raise their hand on that, right? And that's because Jesus has set standards that are impossible unless we do it in his process. That this is impossible unless it's as a body, unless we are equipped, unless we are coming together. And it requires our sufficiency to be from Christ. It requires us to find repentance. It requires us to spend that intimate time in prayer. And I know we got communion today. And so if we want to um, start getting ready for our offering and our worship team coming up, I want us to look at these three things that measurement reveals and also the three measuring tools that we saw in unity, knowledge of the Son of God, and perfect man. And that we can measure ourselves, not by ourselves, but by the Word, and not in a critical way, but just by what God is revealing, both in His Word for us individually, but also for us corporately, that when we ask, how are we doing spiritually? It doesn't have to be a vague answer that um, leaves us confused, but it can provide specific instruction and specific results for our maturity in Christ. I want to leave us with one question here for us to ponder as we look at this, these measuring tools. One, we've got to believe that this stuff's really available. Do we believe that this can really happen today at e-assisted today in Fort Collins or today in our world? But the, but the question I have for us is, what do you think Fort Collins would look like if you knew for sure Jesus Christ in the flesh was going to be here for a year? So you had gotten a message from God and said, Jesus Christ in the flesh is going to be in Fort Collins for a whole year. What do you think would happen in the city? If you just were to think about that. That Jesus in the flesh, just like he was in Jerusalem, Judea, was here in Fort Collins. And the reason I ask that question is because, biblically speaking of what we read, Jesus himself said it would be better for him to leave and send his spirit than for him to stay here. And the question for us is, would more get done in the next year if Jesus came in the flesh, or if the church was like Christ in the way that we see in the Word? So the truth is that more would happen, biblically speaking, from God's point of view, more would happen the church being equipped than Jesus Christ being here in the flesh. But do we believe that's what God really wants to do through us? And just think about what would happen to our relationships, what would happen to our families, what would happen to our jobs, what would happen to our city. If we were able together and by God's grace to do this, man, I will. I, I am like dying to know what that would look like. I've never been to that church. I've never been to the church that looks like Ephesians four eleven through sixteen. But man, if there's anything I can do before I die, would be see God do that work, whether it's here in Fort Collins, here at Eastus. But that we as a church really believe that not only can Christ do this, but this is what He wants to do, and that's what's available for our relationships, that's what's available for our families and for our churches, for our city, is to experience the fullness of who Christ is. But I just believe the first step is we have to look at the measuring tool and celebrate, be encouraged by what we're doing um, well, but we also need to find repentance and 
seek God out on what we're not doing well and be able to be aligned with what he's doing in us personally, but also in us corporately. So we want to bring up um, the offering. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for what's been available in Christ. Lord, that you say he, he who knew no sin became sin, Lord, that we could become the righteousness of God. Father, Lord, that you died not just for us um, to be saved from hell, Lord, or, or to go to heaven, God, but you saved for us to, to bring you glory now. Lord, you saved for us, to you saved us, Father, for us to know you, Lord, and have an intimate relationship with you. God, and I pray, Lord, that we would believe you. God, that we would take you at your word, Father. We would be so hungry, Lord, to have more of who you are. Father, and I pray for this offering, God, that, that it would honor you, Lord, that it would glorify you. God, that Jesus would steward these funds well. Father, that you would bless those um, who respond in faith. God, whether it's giving or not giving, Lord, I just pray, God, that people this morning would regard, uh, would respond to faith in regard to giving. Lord, so I pray, God, that you have your hand on us here, Jesus, and hand on this offering. In Jesus' name we pray and believe. Amen. As we close in worship, um, as always, we want to open up um, the mic if anyone has a word or anything they would like to share. Um, but as we go into worship, I really challenge us to take a look at, at the measuring tool um, and that we would find a hunger to experience fullness of Christ and have a hunger for the truths that we see in the Word. So if anyone has a word, please um, feel free to come up and we'll get you a mic, um, but also will Nat and Jamie will lead us in some worship. Tommy's got a, a word for us. Um, close out. He'll, he'll give the word and pray for us and give us a closing service. Because the joy of the Lord is my strength. When you've got all of the cares of the world, 
jump down all over you. And you go, okay, I give it to you, Lord. I give it to you, Jesus. I give it to you, God, because you've done it all for me. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. So quit worrying. Quit hurting. You can think about it. You can't help it. You're human. So quit worrying about it. My little boy is home. My 45-year-old son. My little boy. It was close. It was close when we were on our knees in the hospital praying before God. And I thank God that Pastor Rick went down there. And even though my son was feeling horribly bad, he goes, oh, come on, Dad. So yeah, come on. He's going to come in here. He's going to lay hands on him. And he's going to pray for you. My wife's looking at me with that real weird stare. You know, why would you tell us? Well, that's too bad. Pastor, we came in and prayed for him, and then my son is home now. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Sir, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You, you got that? He wants you to know that specifically because he was pointing you out. And God always points out, I want you to tell my tell my son, tell my daughter, tell my people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. My joy. I will strengthen you. I will lift you up when you can't lift your arms up. I will help you walk when you can't walk. I will help you speak when you can't speak. Because I'm the Lord. And after mention the message of that magnitude, come on. That tells us that he is in control. He's got it all. He absolutely loves you. And he wants us to project that love to his children, his church. And may the Lord bless you because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Every one of us, amen? Let's sit down and pray. So we can dismiss it. Hey, take that joy with you. He's in you. You, you can't help it. Praise the Lord. Alright? Oh God of heaven, King of kings, and Lord of lords, we love you. We thank you that you live in the mind of hearts. We thank you that you came into us when, when we received Jesus as our Savior. So today, as we dismiss your people. And Father God, we're going to have another service. Let your name be glorified in our life. Let us project that joy wherever we go, whatever we do, in every arena of our life. We ask that you be glorified. And bless them, Father God, and take that veil of hurt and pain off of them and put that blanket of the joy of the Lord upon them. We thank you and praise you for all that you do now. In Jesus Christ's name we thank you, Lord. Amen. We are dismissed.